0: I'm Tom Parker and welcome to the Next 5 podcast, brought to you by the FT Partner Studio. In this series, we ask industry experts about how their worlds will change over the next five years and the impact it will have on our day to day. This week, we're focusing on US and China, and I'll be speaking with Andy Rothman, investment strategist at Matthews Asia, about the political and economic relationship between these two global superpowers and the outlook for the next five years. In 1972, US President Nixon, a staunch anti-communist, shocked the world by reopening a diplomatic door to the People's Republic of China after 25 years of isolated relations between the two countries.
1: We have, at times in the past, been enemies. We have great differences today. What brings us together is that we have common interests which transcend
0: those differences. Following that address in Beijing, the phrase Nixon to China became synonymous with a hardliner taking steps towards peace with a traditional enemy. Despite various political clashes over the decades, think Tiananmen Square in 89 and the US bombing of the Chinese embassy in Belgrade in 99, as well as various tiffs over trade surplus, human rights and censorship, the two nations built and maintained a mutually beneficial strategic partnership Support for China's economic emergence continued under successive US presidents with the idea that an emerging affluent China is better for everyone than a stagnant poorer one. A policy that saw China's GDP rise on average of 10% year on year and catapulted it from outside the top 10 largest economies in 1978 to the second largest just 22 years later. But in 2013, when Chinese President Xi Jinping came to power with a much more authoritarian attitude to his predecessors, the U.S.-Sino relationship started to sour. By the time Donald Trump took the presidency three years later, the strategic partnership rhetoric had changed.
1: China has been taking advantage of the United States for many, many years, and it's been taking out 400 $500, 600000000000 billion a year out of the United States, and we can't let that happen.
0: In a 2018 U.S. National Defense Strategy Summary, China was now labelled a strategic competitor, one that used predatory economics. Interstate strategic competition, not terrorism, was now the primary concern of U.S. national security. Alongside Russia and North Korea, China now topped the United States' naughty list. New Chinese security laws in Hong Kong and the repression of over a million Muslim Uyghurs in China's Xinjiang province reframed America's competition with China as one of freedom versus oppression. Many assumed that a Biden administration would take a fresh approach to the US-China relationship, less combative and more collaborative. But since the start of the Biden presidency, the stance on China has been firm and unchanged from that of his predecessor.
1: Competition with China is going to be stiff. We must prepare together for long-term strategic competition with China.
0: So nearly 50 years on from Nixon's visit, and six months since Biden took charge, what is the state of the US-China relationship? Here to help me unpack the topic is Andy Rothman, who had a 17-year diplomatic career at the US Foreign Service, focusing on China. He's now an investment strategist at Matthews Asia.
1: Well, President Biden is right. Competition is already stiff. But what's the American way of responding to competition? Do we want to try and trip up our competitors or do we just really want to, again, up our game? There are some people who mistakenly, I think, view China as the Soviet Union was several decades ago and who, therefore, because of this misunderstanding, genuinely believe that we're in. A systematic competition or challenge with China. Now you could push back and say, well, sometimes the Chinese cheat and sometimes they try and trip us up. And that's true, but there are better ways to respond to this. For example, within international organizations like the WTO, we need to be active and we need to be aggressively pushing for rules that create a level playing field and for enforcement of those rules. But I think we're we're kind of at an inflection point now where on the one hand, you've got some people who want to try and contain China to block it from continuing to get richer. But what makes us believe that we can succeed in that effort, especially if we realize that most of our allies and partners around the world do more business with China than they do with us. And also, if we understand that the Chinese economy is increasingly a domestic demand-driven economy, it's not driven by exports which means that our trade sanctions aren't really going to hold them back very much. And at the same time, if we look back over the last few decades of our history of engaging with China, I think that's proved really positive and productive. We've provided incentives for the Chinese government to improve its behavior rather than just focusing on sticks. For example, we supported their membership in the WTO in return for them opening up their markets. And that really worked. U.S. exports to China since they joined the WTO increased by over 500 percent compared to about 100 percent increase in the rest of the world. U.S. agricultural exports to China since they joined the WTO are up over a thousand percent, again, about 100 percent to the rest of the world over that time. But not only did we provide incentives for better behavior, but we also established guardrails to make sure that behavior didn't cross a line. For example, the U.S. naval presence in the East and South China Seas to preserve freedom of navigation. Those have been successful as well. And I think that that's likely to be the best path in the future.
0: We've seen that the ongoing tariff war and the trade war, the rhetoric of Trump was that it was going to benefit America and it was going to benefit American jobs. Is this true? And and has Biden's continued trade war going to be a benefit to the U.S., or would stronger U.S.-China relations be better for the U.S. economy?
1: This is really frustrating for me because I had high hopes when Joe Biden won the presidency that he was going to quickly reverse the own goals scored by the Trump administration on China policy. Steps that the Trump administration took which did not have put any pressure on China and were painful for our own economy. Uh, The tariffs that you mentioned are the, the best example of that. The tariffs are still in place, even though every serious economist in the United States, including those at the Federal Reserve, have concluded that the tariffs are entirely paid for by American companies and American consumers and have not put any pressure on China to change anything. Let me give you a couple of data points to support that. Last year, with the tariffs in place, with talk about a trade war, the share of total U.S. imports that came from China went back up to match the historical high from several years before. And on a global basis last year, China's share of world exports hit an all-time high. So that's one of the things that puzzles me. Some in Washington are, are telling me they don't want to lift the tariffs until they get concessions from China. But that's based on a misunderstanding that China's feeling some pain from this. And I I don't think that's the case.
0: What impact have the tariffs had on the American economy?
1: They have had, just like the steel tariffs and the aluminum tariffs, they've benefited a small number of companies who produce those things, but have raised prices and therefore hurt the much, much larger number of companies who use steel and aluminum or Components from China to build their own products. And they've also hurt working families in the United States by pushing up prices for goods and components that go into goods made in the United States that come from China. There is often a view in the US that the reason that we have in America less of people working in manufacturing is because of China. But we have to remember that the manufacturing share of total US employment peaked. In 1953, long before the U.S. imported anything from China, this is primarily because most Americans have been spending more of their disposable income on services, and therefore the share of jobs and services has been rising over that time. But at the same time, while the number of people working in manufacturing in the U.S. has gone down, industrial output nearly doubled in the United States between 1980 and 2020. And another way to look at this is that imports from China do put pressure in the short term on individual companies. But you can look at a study done recently by the Federal Reserve in St. Louis. The economists there found that manufacturing industries, I'm quoting here, manufacturing industries across the U.S. states are better off in the long run. And the U.S. economy is better off as it benefits from cheaper goods from China. That's the end of the quote. Um, these are components and bits and pieces that go into goods that are manufactured and support high end manufacturing jobs in the United States. The other misconception is that importing goods from China is bad for our consumers. And again, studies have found that that's not the case. For example, the Federal Reserve economists wrote recently that, uh quote here, U.S. consumer prices fell substantially due to increased trade with China. And they said, quote, these price effects are particularly large in product categories selling to low-income consumers. The U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics reports that a one-percentage-point increase in the share of imports from China in an industry led to a three-percentage-point fall in consumer prices. So especially at a time when some are worried about inflation in the United States, it's important to recognize that for Working families in the United States, overall, in the majority, doing business with China has actually been positive over the last couple of decades.
0: What do you think needs to change with Biden in office now that the U.S. can benefit from a better Chinese and U.S. relationship?
1: I think that there needs to be a more realistic understanding of the competition and the competitive threat from China to. Sum it up broadly, I would say that the most important lesson we can take from China is that if we get our own house in order in terms of democracy, in terms of education and innovation, in terms of economics, then we don't have to fear China. We can compete. And let me give you another example. We have people now in Washington saying, well, the Chinese economy has gotten to where it is now as a power on the global stage via command and control and industrial policy. So let's go that route. And I think that's a mistake on, on two counts. First, it's a mistaken reading of why the Chinese economy has strengthened so much over a relatively short period of time. The reason that China has gotten richer and stronger is not because of industrial policy by the government. It's because the government's gotten out of the way and allowed private companies and entrepreneurs to drive growth and job creation and wealth creation and innovation. And so the lesson for us is to build up our infrastructure, as China has done over the last few years, and empower our entrepreneurs not go with an industrial policy route. So I think focusing on what we can do ourselves rather than focusing on trying to trip up or contain China is the most important way to shore up our competitiveness.
0: During the tit-for-tat tariffs of Trump's presidential tenure, one weapon used by Washington was the blacklisting of Chinese companies. Under Biden's reign, the tactic has continued. On July 9th, 23 Chinese companies were blacklisted, 14 of them linked to alleged human rights abuses in the Xinjiang province, five for links to the military, and four for conducting business with companies already under US sanctions. Back in May, the president banned Americans from investing in 59 companies, including Huawei and SMIC, China's biggest chip manufacturer linked to the military. The ban went further still, and restricted investment in debt or equity securities, or into funds that contain Chinese securities. The plan was to prevent the U.S. taxpayer funding Chinese companies that are deemed a threat to U.S. national security. But China said it was an overreach of power and that the U.S. should respect market rules. Beijing's own national security concerns has seen them meddle in Chinese companies listed in the U.S most recently banning ride-hailing app Didi from the App Store just a week after it IPO'd on the New York Stock Exchange for fear of sensitive data leakage. The Cyberspace Administration of China ordered them to change their real-time mapping software so as not to reveal government locations. The result saw Didi's share price drop by 25% in a day. So what does this mean for market freedom? Should governments curb investor freedoms? At this point,
1: the limitations on American investors investing in Chinese companies are quite limited just to a handful of, of, of companies, but there are some in Washington who would like to broaden that. Uh, and there are some in Washington who don't think any Americans should be investing in Chinese companies. What they might be misunderstanding is that China drives global growth and that for retirees or people who are working and plan to retire at some point in the United States, having the opportunity to make their own decision about investing in Chinese companies as part of their investment planning. But more importantly, I think U.S. capital markets are all about creating a, a sound regulatory environment and then letting investors make their own choices. And that's for American companies and foreign companies as well. And I also think it's a really good idea for Chinese companies to trade in the U.S. in on the New York Stock Exchange, on NASDAQ, because that requires them to be subject to our rules and also to oversight by the SEC, the Securities and Exchange Commission. And this is better, I think, for American investors. Uh, Another point that I think a lot of people are unaware of is how much the nature of publicly traded chinese companies has changed over the last couple of decades a couple of decades ago when that process began most of the listed chinese companies were state-owned enterprises but today the majority are privately owned entrepreneurial companies which are a great opportunity for american investors and people should have the opportunity they don't have to invest in chinese companies they are riskier than investing in american companies but that's what capital markets are about, making a decision based on the information. We have to push back against the Chinese government's economic abuses and coercion that undercut the foundations of the international economic system. Everyone, everyone must play by the same rules. U.S. and European companies are required to public dis- publicly disclose corporate governance stru- to corporate governance structures and abide by rules to deter corruption and monopolistic practices. Chinese companies should be held to the same standard. Now that the Chinese economy has grown as large as important and as important globally as it is, and now that Chinese companies are more active, both doing business and participating in equity markets around the world and U.S. and other foreign investors are investing in China's market, that everybody should be held to a similar standard and play by the same rules. And I think that If the U.S. government takes a view that China is an enemy or a strategic threat or a systematic threat, and if the U.S. government is trying to contain China and is seen as trying to prevent it from getting richer and stronger, then the Chinese government's reaction is not going to be, yeah, let's work together so that We abide by the global rules, just like other companies and countries do. It's going to be far more aggressive and and confrontational. As I said earlier, I think the last few decades of experience show us that when we provide the right incentives, as well as create guardrails for China, the Chinese government's behavior has improved. And I think that's a better way to get where we want to go than by saying we're going to try
0: and contain China and cut them off from the rest of the world. What does the next 5 years look like for US China relations? It's a hard
1: question to answer what the next 5 years might might look like. Uh we're still early in the Biden administration and it's possible that Biden's view on US China relations will change over time. Uh you could argue that we're at an inflection point now in Washington in general where some people want to try and contain China, try and block it from getting richer. As I said earlier, I don't think there's any reason to believe that we can succeed, uh, both because we don't have that much leverage. And I also think that none of our al- American allies and partners want to be forced to choose sides. I don't think Britain or Germany or France or Japan and Singapore and Korea want to be forced to choose sides. And just because politicians in America say, well, we're not asking them to pick sides. Well, when the U.S. government's talking about sanctions on on China, it kind of gives the impression that they have to choose sides. And I don't think that's going to be constructive. And I think another thing that people are missing is that, well, most Chinese people are proud of what's been accomplished in, in China. I think they also have a positive view of what's happened in the in U.S. and other world democracies. And we shouldn't want to damage that by attacking their government. And again, I want to go back to the success that I think providing incentives and guardrails for the Chinese government over the last few decades has generated. And I think that process of engaging and also establishing guardrails is the best way to continue to make progress so that China is a more responsible player on the global scene and that Chinese people continue to have a better standard of living and more personal freedom and eventually some political freedom as well. We have at times in the past enemies. We have great differences today. What brings us together is that we have common interests which transcend those differences. That's a a great quote from Nixon. And in fact, uh, Ronald Reagan, when he was president, visited the Great Hall of the People in China in 1984, I think, and said something very similar to that. And I think that holds true today. I do not believe that The Chinese government or most Chinese people want to be in conflict with the United States. Sure, we have differences, but again, I think, as Nixon said, we have more common interests. And if you bring that forward to where we are today, we should be working collaboratively with China on a whole range of issues like climate change, like dealing with the challenges in North Korea and Iran. And we have been. And on the economic side, on things like clean tech, for example, we've seen many American companies develop technology here and then be able to run large scale demonstration projects in China and then come back and put those to use in the United States. Innovation in our economy has been closely tied to collaboration with the people of China, Chinese students, academics, and entrepreneurs. It's important for science. important for medicine. And I hate to see the idea that we should be tearing that down rather than finding ways to make that stronger and benefit both sides.
0: Well, that's it for the first episode of the Next 5 podcast. Many thanks to Andy Rothman for chatting with me today and thank you all for listening. For more information on the US-China relationship and the sources we used in the show, please check out the episode description. Take care and bye for now.